Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. With that said, let's begin our study. We're in Mark chapter 12. I'll read verses 28 through 34. We're looking today at a question that was asked of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the greatest command. So beginning at verse 28, reading to verse 34, Mark writes, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So let's get into our introduction and move into this portion of Scripture that we'll be looking at today. As we enter into chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus is completing his mission on earth. This is his final week. We saw how he had entered Jerusalem to great excitement. And, and then we saw as he proceeded through the week how he had cursed a fig tree, he had cleansed the temple for the second time, and he had answered a question concerning his authority. He also had given a parable to the religious leaders illustrating their rejection of him. You see, by doing this, he had provoked even greater opposition by those rejecting him, and they began to barrage him with various questions. So in this chapter, we saw that the Pharisees had joined with the Herodians in intending in to in, entrap him. And to do so, they had asked him a question. And the question, as I was pointing out to you when we looked at verses 13 through 17, the question was political in nature. It had centered on paying a tax. It was intended to provoke Rome against him. Well, when they failed, the next to try were the religious opponents. These were the Sadducees. The question they asked was theological, and their question uh, dealt with resurrection. We saw that in verses 18 through 27. As we saw, Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, so they pose a, a question concerning it, and it was likely one that was used against Pharisees, and they thought this particular question would, would stump Jesus, but Jesus corrected them. He directly told them that they were deceived. He told them that they neither knew Scripture nor the power of God. And so in the rejection of resurrection, they were doomed to reject his resurrection. Now, when he gave that answer, those who were listening were greatly impressed with him 
Matthew 22:33 says, when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The word astonished simply means to be stricken with shock. It speaks of being impressed greatly. The people were amazed, but the Sadducees were left speechless. In Luke 20, 39 and 40, it says, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. When it says no one dared, that word dared means no one was bold enough or courageous enough to proceed questioning Jesus. Now, none of the Sadducees wanted to proceed, but that didn't stop the Pharisees. Jesus had made a tre tremendous impression. The people are now talking about him. And since Pharisees believed in resurrection, his answer must have pleased them. Though they were pleased, Jesus was still their enemy. So they formulated a question and they sent one of their members to pose it to them. Matthew tells us in chapter 22, 34 through 35, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. When it says a lawyer, it's not speaking of a lawyer as we know them today. A lawyer at that time is a, a, an expert in Jewish law. He's also called a scribe. And so they had gathered together. They spoke of, um, amongst themselves, and then a lawyer was sent to ask him a question. And it was not a question that was sincere. Notice again, it was a question intended to test him. Now, in verse 28 here in Mark, it says, one of the scribes, speaking of the lawyer, came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? This is what is called a Pharisaic scribe. He hears them debating, He's aware of his answer. He saw the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he proceeds anyway. Now, he had noticed that Jesus gave a good answer, but he asked a prepared question. And the scripture tells us this expert in Jewish religious law came to test him. The word testing speaks of to test maliciously, to put to proof feelings or judgments. It's a, it's a test intended to stumble you or, or cause you to enter into error. Now, this had just happened with the Pharisees and the Herodians. He was a teacher. He was a man of many words. So they want to use his words to entrap him. Psalm 56 verse 5 says it like this, All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. So they're attempting to catch him. They're trying to ensnare him. They're testing him. So the question is asked in verse 28, which is the first commandment? but it's the greatest commandment of all. Now, we've already seen that he answered two questions. One was political, the other theological. And this question is also theological. It pertains to the greatest command. Which is the first commandment in the law of Moses? Which command is the one most necessary to keep? Now, Jewish rabbis had enumerated 613 commands in the law of Moses. We think in terms of the Ten Commandments. But rabbinic scholars actually had isolated 613. And these 613 laws were divided into two categories, what was called heavy and what was called light. The heavy commands were mandatory to obey, but the light were less binding. These 613 commands had been divided into 248 positive and 365 negative commands. So the question is this, which of the 613 commandments is the greatest command of Moses? Which of the 248 positive and 365 negative commands is the very most important? 
So by this question, they desired to draw Jesus into a comparison with Moses. You see, Jesus had consistently challenged their teachings, and that had angered them. So they're hoping it's going to contradict something that Moses had said. And if they can get him to contradict Moses, they can now charge him with heresy. But their question is simple. What sums up all of the commandments that we have been commanded to obey? And so Jesus responds in verse 29. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, Jesus responded by reciting something. I'm going to give you some information that will help us all to understand what's going on here. He gave to them a recitation of something that in Judaism is called the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the fifth book of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, the word Shema is a, word, is a Hebrew word for hear. So, hear, O Israel, that's why it's referred to as the Shema. Now, the Shema was the most popular expression of faith in the nation. I was reading one commentator who said, saying the Shema was a passport into heaven for any child of Abraham. These are the most familiar, recited, and copied scriptures in Judaism. These scriptures were worn by all religious Jews and were in their mezuzahs. Now, the mezuzah, the word mezuzah means doorpost. It speaks of a parchment inscribed with scripture and attached in a case to the doorpost of a Jewish house or as a sign of faith. If you walk in the center here and you look to the side, you're going to see a mezuzah there. It contains scripture speaking of the blessings it is to worship the Lord. Now, this is an observation of Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, which reads, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they're familiar with these scriptures. They're the most familiar scriptures in Judaism. They're, they, along with Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, 37 through 41, were recited twice a day. See, it is told, they are told when you lie down and when you rise up, you begin, you lie down by reciting, you wake up by reciting. This should surround you. Even as you sleep, you should be encompassed by the word of God. And therefore, they were completely familiar with these scriptures. So Jesus is quoting this. And, and the, law, the lawyer may have, even as he was standing there, been wearing a phylactery. A phylactery would be, was, was something that had before their eyes and they would have it bound on their hand. You see it in Israel to this day, and there's scriptures. And so even as Christ is speaking to him, it's possible he may have been wearing those, uh, the, the phylactery that, that Jesus will later speak about when he condemns those who wear it in a hypocritical way. And so Jesus would have been looking at a man with outside religious faith. He would have been quite aware of this command to memorize scripture. It's to be in your heart. It's to be taught diligently. It's it's to be spoken of constantly. It's be, to be recited twice a day. It's, it's to strengthen you. It's to guide your life. It's to establish your homes. 
And so he had been familiar with this. So he's asking, what is the great command? And Jesus goes to the one that's most familiar. Hear, O Israel, verse 29, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, every true Jew knew that God is the God of the universe. He wasn't some God of, of just the Jewish people. You see, during that day, the, the people that surrounded the nation of Israel, all of the people, when you read concerning them, the, uh, you know, the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Uptites, Adesites, the Cellulites, all of those people, they had their own way of dealing with things. They were pagans. But every Jew knew that God is the God of the universe. Other nations were idolaters, but the God of Israel was one God. The God of Israel is undivided. And that truth, that reality, there is but one God in this entire universe separated Israel from the pagan nations of the world. So as was true with all religious Jews, this expert on the law of Moses, this expert, this lawyer, he knew this quite well. But knowing these verses, and this is part of what I want to share with us today, knowing these verses is not enough. It isn't in knowing truth, but surrendering to it that results in salvation. To know a passage is more than simply having head knowledge. To know a passage is to do that passage. If you really want to know what a scripture means, make up your mind to obey it. Jesus is speaking on one occasion, and as he's speaking to his men, it's found in John 13, and as he's washing their feet, and, and, um, and the apostle Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, and Jesus begins to speak to him and says, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me, and we all know this, the story how Peter said, then give me a complete bath, you know, my hand, my feet, my, my, my head, give me a complete bath, and Jesus said, if you've been washed, he says, you don't need to wash anything except your feet. And he begins to speak about practical, practical living for him. But he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I've shared this with you many times. I'll say it briefly. The Jewish concept of knowledge is different than the pagan concept of knowledge. You go to school today. And you're following more of a Greek system than you are a Jewish system when you get educated. All of us probably know that, but let me say it anyway. For the Greek system, knowledge was the acquisition of information. So the more acquired information you have, the more they would say you know. But the Jewish system is different. The Jewish system is not the acquisition or the acquiring of knowledge. It's the acquisition, and then it is the practicing it. You acquire it, but you do it. So it's not just gathering information. It's the tra transformation of your life that comes because you have acquired the information. So information produces transformation after assimilation. That's how it works. So that's why Jesus would say, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's not enough for me as a Christian to be able to quote Deuteronomy 6. What God would have for me is to do that which is commanded. To not just be able to quote a Bible verse, oh, God so loved the world, but to know what that means personally. To make myself part of that verse, realizing I'm part of that world that God so loves 
And the command to believe is a command to me. See, so you can go to school as I did. I went to Saturday school. Uh, we called it catechism at that time when I was growing up. And on Saturday, we would go and we would learn Bible kinds of stories or whatever. And you would get a little gold or silver star that you could put into your, your booklet that you had and all of that. I, as a kid, had acquired information. I could recite the Apostles' Creed and the variety of things that we were taught so that I could perform certain things through the ritual and receive certain sacraments. I did those things, and so I had that information. But that information did me no good because there was no transformation. I knew those things in my head, but they never transformed my life. And that's what Christ is talking about here. He's saying, it's not enough. And we'll see this in a moment. It's not enough that you have this knowledge in your head. That knowledge has to transform your life. That's what true knowledge of God is. It's not a head full of knowledge. It's full surrender to God. And, and, and that's the way God reveals and discloses himself to us. And Jesus speaks of that in, in John 7, 15 through 17. It says that the, Jewish, uh, the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. It's to do his will. That will give you the information and understanding of who I am. So it's not simply knowing something about God that saves you. It's knowing the God who reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ through his word. In 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul said it like this, For I know whom I have believed. He didn't simply say, I know what I believe. He said, I know whom I have believed. I have a relationship with God who gives this information. That's what Christ is talking about. In John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is what gives life a quality. This is a spiritual life that it, it comes through, Jesus was saying, knowing you, the Father, the creator of all things. When you look a little bit at the Pharisees during the time of Christ, they knew incredible amounts of Scripture, volumes of Scripture. They were brilliant scholars. But they had a major problem. They knew Bible passages, but didn't know the author of the Bible. So Jesus is taking them to, to square one. He's bringing them to the basics of the basics. He's giving them a Bible passage they're familiar with. And what is he saying? He is saying to this lawyer, this scribe, you repeat this habitually, but you don't understand what it means. Now, why are you commanded to love God completely with everything within you? Why? why? Why does God say to do that? Well, I do that because it's a response, because God has loved me. I respond, he first loved me. I love him because he first loved me. My love for God isn't self-generated. I didn't create, you didn't create an image of God, prayerfully you didn't, that you now worship. No, he revealed himself to us by his spirit and through his word. And as he shows us the, the depth of his love, it, it provoked a response in us to want to follow him. I, I, want to, I want to love this God who has loved me. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Old Testament prophet said, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. 
I have loved you, and, and I want you to love me in return. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one God. You shall love the Lord thy God with everything within you. You shall love him with everything within you. How does God show his love? He loved us so much he gave his son. And I, I was a young man once, many years ago. I was a student at Cal Poly Pomona. I took my wife, Marie, and my baby girl, Corinne, who was two and a half at the time. I had to go to the Cal Poly campus for something. And while we were there, I was talking to my Corinne. And again, she was like two and a half years old. I still remember this. This came up as I was looking at this passage. I remembered this, and I wrote it down because it touched my heart. Because as we were on the campus, I still remember, and I have a picture somewhere of this, where I said to my little girl, I said, Corinne, do you love your daddy? She said, yes. And I said, who's your daddy? No, I said, do you, do you? <laughs> I said, do you love your daddy? And she said, yes, daddy, I do. And I said, how much? And I'll never forget, I'll, a lot of you parents have probably done this, how much do you love me? And she's just a little thing, two and a half years old, and she stretches her little arms like this. I love you this much, daddy. And I said to her, that's not very much. So she tried to stretch it even more. I love you this much, daddy. I said, oh, that's still not very much. And so I got a picture of her when she's stretching her arms as far as she can. I love you this much. And then my mom, later on, I had told her the story, gave me a plaque that I have somewhere in my office. And it, on the plaque, it says, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, I love you this much. And he stretched out his arms. And he died. And that hit me. As my little girl was stretching her arms as far as she could to encompass and demonstrate her love for her daddy. Now, why wouldn't I love my God who sent his son to do that for me? Why wouldn't I love him with everything within me? He didn't have to do that. So you, sometimes people say, well, he commands us. You know why? Because he showed you how much he loves you. And he's saying, love me in return. I loved you this much. And you love me back. That's what we do. You love me with everything within you because I gave to you the very best in heaven. I give you my son. Love me in response. Love me with all your heart. Love me with all your soul. Love me with all your mind. Love me with all your strength. When the Bible speaks of loving with all your heart or the heart itself, the heart is the core of the inner being. It is the origin of all thoughts, words, and actions. In Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The soul is the seed of all emotional activity. Matthew 26.38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The mind speaks of your intellectual life. As, as well as your disposition and your attitudes. Psalm 119, 148, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Your strength speaks of your service to God. 
In Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord, not for men. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Romans 12.1 and 2, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Love God with your soul and your mind, with your heart, with your strength, with everything that's within you. And that love is shown by desire. A desire to obey him, not being forced to because you want to. A desire to serve him, not because he makes you and you think the more you serve him, the more he'll give you, but because you love him and want to. I'm a terribly spoiled man, and I admit that. I really am. I deserve it, but I am. No, I'm a, I'm a very terribly, terribly spoiled man. To this day, to this day, if I want to get my wife upset, I'll stand up like I'm going to go and get myself something to eat from she's made dinner, and, and I'll stand up like I'm going to serve myself. And she gets angry. She'll actually get angry. Where are you going? I said, I'm going to, over, I'm going to go sit down. What do you mean, sit down? Who are you? No, she says, she says, sit down. I can get it for you. Yeah, I'm spoiled. But is that because, is it because I'm mean to her? I force her to do that because I, because I said, I'm the man, you're the woman. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't work, does it? That wouldn't work. Why do you do that? I'm not asking you to do that, and I've told her that. Look, and I can serve myself. How hard is it? I can do that. I'm, sit down and enjoy your dinner, baby. It's no big deal. No. I want you to sit down. You relax. Let me serve you. That's my wife. And so if you were to ask her, is it because he forces you? Is it because, you know, he dominates? No, no. Now, unfortunately, sometimes in our age, there are those who might believe that. Oh, he's just a brutal, you know, tyrant now. It's because she loves me. That's why she does it. You see, there was a woman, I heard of this woman who, um, whose husband had, had, had died and she had remarried and she had taken some things from, from her previous marriage and all. She put it in a trunk, put it up in the attic and, and uh, went on in her new marriage and all with her new husband. And, and over uh, a few years that uh, they'd been married, the husband, the new husband had gone up to the uh, attic area and was rummaging through some things, he saw this small trunk and opened it up, didn't know what it was. And at the top of the, uh, uh, of the, the when you open it up, you could see at the top that there was a uh, piece of paper. So he opened it up to read what it was. He didn't know what it was. And what it was was a list. It was a list of various things. And what that was was the, a list that the man had given to, the first husband had given to the wife, and it was a list of, you know, pay the bills, water the lawn, you know, take out the dog. It was all these things to do. And so he handed it to the woman. He said, what is this? And she looks at it. She says, oh, that was a list my husband, my first husband had given me things that I was to do. And it hit her 
the things that were written on that piece of paper and she was basically forced to do were things that she did naturally for the one she was in love with now. Why do you, why do, you do the things that you do? Why, why do I serve my wife? Why do I care for my kids? Why do I worship my God? Is it because I'm forced to? No. It's because I want to. Why? Because of what they mean to me. Because of what they have done in my life. Because of the quality of, of, of people that they are. Because I love them that way. So love is, is shown by a desire. It is shown by a desire to, to do those things that please the Lord. It's not because we're forced to. It, it's, it's demonstrated through yielding in a voluntary way our lives. Like Jesus in John 14, 15 said, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me. Well, our, our love for God grows over time. It's the foundational passion of our life. You see, knowing him and serving him is the motivation. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You see, when you love the Lord, his commands become a delight. And obedience isn't tiresome, it's a joy. In 1 John 5, 2 and 3, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one God. Love him with everything within you. So Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. But notice he says the second is like unto the first. There's a second commandment that's like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The second is like this. Now, the first command centered on our duty to God. But I want you to notice something. The second command centers on our duty to man. So how is loving God revealed? Very often, it's revealed by loving people. In 1 John 5, 1, if we believe Jesus is truly Christ, we are God's children. Everyone who loves the Father will also love his children. I've had people say this. This is actually a quote. I love God, but it's people I hate. No. Obviously, that's not true. 1 John 4, 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So to love God is demonstrated, this invisible God is demonstrated by the love for those whom he loves. That's how it's demonstrated. And this is where Pharisees had failed. They knew the word, they could claim to love God, but they were not kind to people. They didn't have a love for people. They, they had a love for rules. In Luke 13, 14 through 16, it, it, it's, it reads indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. A synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has, has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? You guys love your rules, but you don't love the people. You love God, but you love man. That's how love for God is demonstrated. 
Christian faith is worked out in actions towards those in need. Love for God will always be revealed by love for those whom he loves. And love isn't an emotional feeling alone. It's a concern, a concern that motivates us to action. Like John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Now, here's something we need to remember in this day. You can love those you disagree with, and you don't even have to like them. I think that sometimes we confuse like with love. I can have a, a, a compassionate love for somebody that I disagree with. I don't have to like them. I don't have to like their views. But I shouldn't wish them evil. And I ask the Lord to help me to be sincere in this. In Romans 13, 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, in a, in a nation that seems to be addicted to, to laws, we, we add laws, hundreds of laws every year. And it doesn't change society one bit. You can, you, can, you can pass laws for me not to do certain things, but you cannot pass a law for me to love somebody. You can't do that. I may not do something that I want to do. I may not do it because I don't want to be penalized. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to pay a fine or whatever. And I'll be restricted. My behavior can be restricted by that law. But that's a very low level of, of, of morality, to be honest with you. The ethics in something like that is simply punitive. I'm afraid of being penalized. There's something greater than that, and that's called the agape love of God. And when that's within me, I don't do certain things, not because I'm afraid to be penalized. I, do, I don't do certain things because it's not good for that person if I do those things. It's very simple. Now, in, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in, in, in Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, it, it speaks of the, this, this kind of thing of loving and caring. And, and these verses speak of leaving fallen grapes on the ground when you reap your harvest, of, of not stealing, not dealing falsely, not lying, not robbing your neighbor, paying a worker immediately, not cursing the deaf, not placing a stumbling block before the blind. It speaks of doing no injustice in court, not being partial in judgment to the rich or the poor, but judging righteously. It speaks of not uh, slandering your neighbor or hating your brother in your heart. It speaks of being honest and rejecting, taking vengeance, not bearing grudges. He says, instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these are all aspects of loving our neighbor. The whole duty of man is summed up in one word, love. Well, the question can be asked, oh, okay, fine, but who is my neighbor? And that, that question was answered in Luke 10, 20, uh, uh, 25 through 37, where Jesus gave the story of the uh, good Samaritan. And, and at the end of the story, the Samaritan who did well to somebody, Jesus said, your, your neighbor is, is anybody. It's everybody. You, you care for people. Now, in James chapter 2, verse 8, it says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. So caring for people, when Jesus is speaking of that, it really isn't that hard. And it is a good witness for the Lord. I was reading about this, perhaps some of you did, and I'll just read it as I read it. A man was being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy boulevard, and when the light turned yellow... 
He did the right thing. He stopped at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light. Well, the woman who was tailgating was furious, and she honked her horn. She screamed in frustration. She had missed her chance to get through the intersection. As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up into the face of a police officer, and he ordered her out of the car with her hands up, and he took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell, opened the door, escorted her back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you and cussing at him. I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed you stole the car. <laughs> so glad you liked that one. I thought it was funny. How are they, how, how is the world to know you're a believer? They shall know we are Christians by, by what? By our love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another, Jesus said. How will people know you're a Christian? If you're always mad, always complaining. How are they going to know? How do they know? You see, when I was a young man, I've said this before, I'll say it briefly, but what is it that caused me to be open to hearing the gospel? Very simply put, I walked into a place called Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, when Pastor Chuck was ministering back in 1970. I went into this small chapel in the summer of 1970. And I walked in, and I felt something in this place that I had never felt in a church before. I still remember it. It always causes me joy to remember. Sitting down amongst all these people as they were singing songs, and this kid got up and gave a Bible study, and, and I'm puzzling in my mind, what is this? This is a new feeling. I've never felt this before. There's something different about these people. It was, it was not an odd feeling like they're creepy weird I don't want to be around these people it was more attractive it was more these people have something I don't have but I, I don't know what it is I still remember I was 20 years old I'd, I had dr drunk some beer I'd smoked some pot I went to church I was barefooted expecting to get kicked out sitting there on a carpet with hundreds of other kids in a very small chapel that was designed to sit a couple hundred people it was packed and I did not know what I was experiencing. I did not know. I had never felt what I was feeling. It was tangible. It was real. It was something you could almost physically feel. There was something there. Well, later on, I came to know what it is. It was the love of God. Isn't that sad when you, when you consider it, that you could walk into a church so many times as I did prior to this, as many times as I had, and never experience a, a sense of, of the presence of God? And then to go amongst all these dirty, unwashed hippies that people didn't like. And to sense that there's some presence in here that I do not know. See that? When people come here in our fellowship, 
it has been my prayer for the longest time that they would sense there's something different about these people. You know, they come, they want to sit down, and, and they have to get past you, and you don't give them a dirty look like, what are you doing? You know, you just move politely. You're more than welcome. The more the merrier. See, that's how it was in the early days for me, and that's what I still carry to this day. That, that, that knowledge that, that religion is not just knowing Scripture. Religious faith is not simply being able to quote certain Bible verses and, and all of that. It, it's a transformed heart. It, it, it's the Lord your God is one. You love him with everything, but there's an overflow of that to those whom he loves. So, so this love isn't just for you. It's for others. And so this, this lawyer is saying, what's the great command? And Jesus answers something he already knows. More than likely, he had those scriptures on him. They were, they were what were worn by religious Jews during the time of Christ. And as he's speaking, Jesus says, there's two. The first is love God. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. Incidentally, there's no third command there. There's some people who will say, and then the third commandment is love yourself. It doesn't, and the Bible never teaches me to love myself. The Bible tells me to die to self. Why? Because I already love myself so much, I won't do anything for anybody else. So I die to self so I can love others. That's how it works. The church made a big mistake in grabbing hold of this. You've got to love yourself first. No, you die to yourself, you receive the love of God, and you show it to other people. That's how it works in people's lives, and that's what transforms society. That's what it is, you see? So love for God and love for man is greater than any, uh, any offering any man can make. He said it in verse 33. He says, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what this lawyer says. So the, the way that the man speaks to Christ reveals the sincerity of his heart. This kind of love for God and man is really what reveals faith. It's greater, he's saying, than rituals. It's greater than burnt offerings. That's what God desires. Like it says in the Old Testament book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, it's interesting because the lawyer, when he speaks concerning loving with all your understanding, now this is something you might find interesting. I hope you do. I did when I was looking at this passage. The lawyer used a different word for the word understanding than Jesus used. In verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your understanding, your mind, your understanding. That word meant uh, to, to exercise a, a deep thought. But in verse 33, he used a word meaning a mental putting together, a synthesis, it's hearing something, putting it together in the mind. It speaks of comprehending. So he understood what Christ was saying. It's more than just in your head knowing something. It's comprehending what that means. I don't know how to go. I don't know how to say this. I've been trying to say it the whole time. Might as well give up and just practice on second service.
I was driving a, many, many, many years ago now, a young girl, she was 13, driving her home. She had babysat my kids while Marie and I had gone out. And I was driving her home, and I asked her this question. I said, can you tell me what love is? She says, oh, yeah. I said, what is it? It was about a 25-minute drive from where I was to where she lived. I said, what is it? What is love? For about, well, the whole drive from the point that I had asked her that question till I got to her driveway to send her off to go into her home, she kept on trying to figure out what it was, and she never did. And she was saying things like, well, it's kind of a feeling, but no, I know it's not a feeling. It's kind of like, and she kept saying, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like. She had no clue what it was. And there are a lot of people that if they were asked right now, can you tell me what loving God is? Can you tell me that? Can you explain to me what loving your neighbor as yourself really is? They cannot do it because they've been taught things in their head, but they haven't acted out those things in their lives. They haven't learned to put love into practical, into practice. So I would say, let's be friendly to people. Let's be helpful. Let's be encouraging. Let's be polite to one another. Let's be kind. Let's resist the impulse to argue all the time that we disagree with somebody. Let us be patient. Standing in lines, doesn't that kill you? Marie and I, I didn't mention this, I don't think, last week, but when we came home from, from Florida and our, our flight had been delayed, we stood in line between four and a half to five hours waiting to get a flight to go home, and we never got the flight. We had to spend the night. And we got up the next day to come home. We were supposed to be home on Friday. We got home Saturday afternoon. But the line was very polite, very quiet. I was actually amazed that four and a half hours and up to five hours, I made a friend who was in line. We spoke for hours. It was great. But I'm not really good in lines. This is God. <laughs> be, be, be courageous in your faith and share what you know you believe. Here's something. Put the cart in the cart corral instead of leaving it so we bump into it when I'm pulling out. Resist parking in handicapped spaces if you're not handicapped. That's one of my things I hate. Stop at stop signs. Could you do that? Just be nice. What's so hard about all of that? It's not that hard, I'm telling you. Just die to self and learn to love other people. People will look at the way that we live and they'll say there's something different about you. So as this man is speaking, he's putting it together. He's comprehending. Oh, these are things that you do. And notice how Jesus speaks. Verse 34, we'll close. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. You've understood that simple observation of laws won't save you. Now take the next step. You haven't entered in, but you're even at the door. You see, and Matthew goes on to say it like this. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are revealed as hanging in Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. This law is fulfilled 
in Jesus dying for us. Everything is centered on his sacrifice. And if you can see, Jesus is saying, when he says, you're not far from the kingdom, if you could see this, then you're going to receive me because I'm about, Jesus could be saying, to lay my life down by hanging on a cross. These laws are hanging as Jesus himself will hang. And I'll hang for you. I'll die on that cross hanging for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You're not far from the kingdom. You see me for who I am. You're comprehending what I'm doing. You know that obeying certain laws will not make you as righteous as you would want to be because it's not changing your life. You know the law, love people. You Pharisees love the law, but you do not love the people. Understand that true faith is not only loving the God who saved you, but loving those whom he also loves. You're not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared question him. None of his opponents dared raise another question. They were just no match for him, and it was useless to try to entangle him. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.